Welcome to Gay for Pay Month, a month of straight people pretending to be queer, movies that somehow found a queer audience, and anything else we can justify to watch Disney films on this podcast. How do you like your tea? I'm more of a cold tea fan. I'm Nato Kitsch, and tonight on the Gay Anarchist Yoga and Erotic Cooking Association, we find out that some like it hot. Uh... This film has everything. Cross-dressing, <laughs> saxophones, Marilyn Monroe, lying to women to sleep with them, and running from the mob. <laughs> I'm joined by two friends who maybe have better suggestions, though, for escaping the mafia. First up, their pop-up combination popcorn and mortuary proposal uh, named Morn Mob just got rejected. It's Ro. Hello, everybody. My name is Ro, and I'm here on behalf of Associated Mobs of America. If you or a loved one are not interested in getting whacked, please contact the National Do Not Whack Registry at 1-555-669-4225 or 1-555-NO-WHACK. I think whacking is called pegging nowadays. Next up, she goes by Ace because of that one time she tipped over a cow and got on the Mufia's hit list. It's Amelia. Hello, my name is Amelia, and, um, you know, like, this one time, I, um, I got a hit on me from the mob, and, uh, you know, the best way to escape, if you really wanted my advice, is to, uh, start, like, a, a small, nondescript cult, and then nobody will ever be able to find you. But if they do, you'll have thousands of henchmen just willing to do your bidding. And I can be found at the Nefarious Navigator on Instagram. I'm not going to lie. I like the idea... <laughs> no, go, go No, you go ahead. I like the idea of starting a cult to get rid of people, because as soon as you mention that you have a cult, people are just going to be like, you know what? It's been fun. I'm going to talk to you next time. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Uh, I may have started uh, making bets on what you two choose for your opening lines, and cult was actually my bet for Amelia this time. Uh, are we that predictable? <laughs> Either that or just know you too well. Uh, Some Like It Hot is a classic (laughs) movie about two musicians who hire Joe and Jerry who witness a mob hit and have to pretend to be girls to join an all... (laughs) Fuck. My notes autocorrected to all snake band. Uh, <laughs> all girl band heading to Florida in order to get away. But when Joe falls for sugar, things get all screwbally. Will the two be able to keep it in their skirts, or will the mob be able to see through their fantastic calves? If that sounds like your jam, man, go check it out, because we're about to get into the spoiler yacht and talk about this film. Toot toot! So, so what'd y'all think? Um, this movie is really long. <laughs> It's like Marvel movie long. This, yeah, it's two and a half hours, but it doesn't feel long while you're watching. Like, I knew in my head it was two and a half hours, but, like, the first hour goes by, and you're like, wow, that was a whole hour? (laughs) I mean, to be honest, when I heard we were doing Some Like It Hot, I haven't actually seen it before, Um, but the second that... I knew we were doing a movie from the 50s. I was I was strapped in and ready for a two and a half oh, hour movie. I'm not going to lie. The first time I watched it, 
was like with my mom and we were just like you know a casual like oh let's watch you know just a movie for a classic movie uh you know little hour and a half like you know sort of laugh fest and then we're like an hour and a half into it it's like it's still going not to say it isn't good though like it is you know uh, a classic film uh so but um it, it's like when you watch this film, it's like it is it's, it's not like a queer film, but it also is a queer film. Um, why do you think that this film didn't cause like a huge fuss during its time? But other projects like Salome did, you know, I've been asking myself that exact same question <laughs> the whole time I was watching this movie. I was thinking to myself, how in the world did they sneak this all past the Hayes Code? <laughs> I think that there's always a place in a patriarchal society for men that are making fun of women. Um, I think if this movie had been like more blatantly like these are drag queens or something like that, it 1000% would have not slipped past the Hayes Code, right? But the fact that it's two men who are just pretending to be women for the sake of escaping the mob. And um, one of those men is going back and is like Mrs. Doubt firing back and forth uh, in order to manipulate one, like a woman to sleep with him. I think that makes it, you know, in some ways acceptable to like 1950s uh, male dominated society. At least most... not excusing it, not excusing it. Just to be really I clear, I don't think that's great, right, but like I do think that that has a lot to do with it. <laughs> I was, I was gonna say it's the fact that they're both straight, but like you get into the second half of this movie and you're like, well, really, are they? I mean, <laughs> it's like when the joke goes on like longer than expected and it becomes like something else like uh, subverting it in a way um, it becomes like uh, a full-on improv bit like yeah, long like, form improv bit. have y'all heard of christian like, shaw oh, is a horse <laughs> of what christian shaw is a horse no who's that oh i love christian shaw is a horse <laughs> christian shaw is a horse is this comedy bit where um, basically Christian Shaw and I forget the other performer's name. I'm sorry. Um, uh, I will look it up right now. Please do. Because I, so, I, I love this comedy bit. So the idea is that they're kind of like doing a duo bit and they're talking about this kid's show that they were on. And they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that song that we used to do. And and like they ask the audience, like, do you, you want to hear this song? And the audience is yeah, you know. And so the joke is that the only lyrics are Christian Shaw is a horse, Christian Shaw is a horse, da 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 Christian Shaw is a horse, and it just repeats over and over again. Kind of the, the, the meta joke is like hearing like the audience like find it hilarious and then kind of growing sick of it and then finding it hilarious again, you know, like as the repetition. Oh, because it just goes on. on so long. Yeah. Yeah, it's like... Imagine the song that doesn't end from Lamb Chop, except it goes on for like eight minutes. And the person who's singing This Is the Song That Never End progressively gets more and more hysterical um, and crazed. So it's Kristen Shaw and Kurt Braunohler. Thank you. And you can find that on the YouTubes. Uh, 
but the yeah, YouTubes. I think but that's... yeah. Long, long story short, it's kind of like this, right? Where you have this bit that you're so far into, and eventually it comes to a point where you have to either break character or like commit one hundred and ten percent. And I think one of them chose to break character, and the other chose to commit, like, way too hard. <laughs> Absolutely. And this that was the other thing, like, because there's a lot of, like, and I don't want to say queer coding because they're just, like, stereotype, feminine stereotypes that appeared, like, through Silent Era and stuff like that as really cheap go- uh jokes you had the pansy you had the oh look it's you know he's in a dress right now and and you have like the whistle like do do i can't whistle you know and this is kind of like in a way it's kind of like an experimental film (laughs) almost because of just like how long jack lemon like has to keep up like the charade and how, like, uh, Tony Curtis just, like, gives up on it, like, halfway through. Yeah, and I think it's funny that the one who decides to go in on it whole hog is the one that at the beginning was, like, yeah, first chance I get, I'm ditching this <laughs> so I can go hit on women. <laughs> and then, and then like, three quarters of the way into the movie, he's like, no. I'm engaged to a millionaire. I'm going to marry him. I'm going to get sweet alimony checks for the rest of my life. <laughs> there are any millionaires. Can I just say, though, that on that note, that end, that last line, <laughs> they're just, or that last exchange where they're on the boat, and he's like, I'm really mad. <laughs> and he's just like, well, no one's perfect. <laughs> I think that's the queerest thing that... Bisexual icon. Queerest thing that has been put on film in the 50s, I'm sure. But yeah, on that note, like with that line, how did this get past the Hays Code? Um, And and so, did like a little bit of digging. So the Hays Code was kind of like on its final legs during this time, so people were getting through all kinds of things left and right. Um, right, this is like the last 10 years of the Hays Code, right? Yeah, so the Hays Code was the name of the restrictions based on distributed films, so the film industry could regulate itself instead of being regulated by the government. That's paraphrasing the entire thing. There's plenty of other sources for like in-depths of the Hays Code. Uh, the rules were pretty restrictive, and films were reviewed and censored in some cases uh, before or during production. Homosexuality was one of the big no-no's. Uh, so writers and directors had to be more subtle with their references, making characters, like, getting the script past uh, the censors, and then having the actors kind of play more, f- play the characters more feminine, stuff like that. Having non-threatening gays, which is where we get stuff like the gay best friend, uh, or the what would evolve into, like, the gay best friend. Um, or just, like, you know queer people as jokes both men and women like butch women and pansy men it should be mentioned that when this movie was made the Hayes code was already kind of you know going out and it was being replaced with the motion picture associate of america in 1968 but the mpaa as we've come to know it has been around since 1945 but it was also founded in the 20s if that makes sense 
So it started in the 20s. It evolved in like 45, around 45, uh, and then took over completely. And that's what we still have today. It's changed a few times. For the most part, the MPAA's rating system is what we have for films with the G, PG, PG-13, R, and NC-17. Right. And things changed pretty fast once they got rid of the Hayes Code. Like, it's only 10 years between this film and the like the gay deceivers right yeah yeah i believe so the gay deceivers so, yeah gay deceivers was like 69 i think mhm cuz it was like one of the first like post Hayes code like gay films but so that was like, supposed to be gay <laughs> you can you could see this as like a boundary pushing sort of film like you get used to the idea of seeing, like, men in dresses or, like, slightly gay comedy. And then, like, the Hayes Code disappears and all of a sudden you have room to make, like, really, like, films. <laughs> films like The Gay Deceivers that are kind of pushing it. Yeah, and I mean, not even in that sense, like, in a more heteronormative sense, too, um, like, that scene of Marilyn Monroe just, like, on top <laughs> of that, of the guy, you know, making out with him or whatever, like, I think that wouldn't have even flown, like, I'm a big I Love Lucy fan, right? And in, like, six years earlier, when I Love Lucy, like, first aired, they couldn't even have, like beds together as a married husband and wife on television right like yeah think so... like mr mr and mrs cleaver like <laughs> sleeping in like twin beds right parts, like seven feet away from each other and you're sitting there thinking how in the world did these two manage to have kids if they sleep 10 feet apart from each other um obviously because the stork brought the babies Oh, yeah, I Bro, forgot. Bro, do you not know how babies are made? Wait a no, second. I watched Dumbo. I know how babies are made. <laughs> do you know how empathy imp works? Uh, I can't say that word. Uh, <laughs> I watched Dumbo. I know what's up. <laughs> what were some other things that kind of surprised you that got into this? Like for me, uh, the scene where uh, Jack Lemon's character uh, Jerry, it or it, with Daphne, which is great. It, name yourself Daphne. We need to normalize people changing. I'm, their own names. I'm actually like, <laughs> yeah, ch choose your own name. If you don't like Geraldine, you're you know, and you want to be called Daphne, that is your right. Um, I, but the scene with Daphne in the sleeping compartment and all the girls are in there, I'm like, how did this get through? Yes. Especially with the, like, implications of how much heavy drinking was going on. Because, you know, like, I think, you know, having a whiskey on the rocks day in and day out, 24 hours a day was completely normalized at that point in society. But... Just, like, kind of the binge drinking that they were all doing crammed into, like, a little train car. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That I don't think was as normalized. <laughs> I like I like that scene for another reason, too, which is, like, you know, before then, when we were focused on the band or Marilyn Monroe in particular, 
it's filmed in a very like, oh, look, sexy lady, look at her legs. Do you see those legs? They sure are legging kind of way. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like you get the sense that all Daphne really wants is to have a girl in the bunk with him. And then, like, they write the scene in a way that as soon as that happens, he's like, no, no, please leave. Everybody, please leave. <laughs> on, on a minor note, but have you seen Daphne's legs? Yeah, they're like, really nice. They have really nice... <laughs> both Tony Curtis and Jack uh, Lemon both have really nice legs, for the, for the record. It, I mean, it, I know it means nothing, but the one leg shot that they had was just like, yeah, those are nice legs. I like their calves. Nice calf shapes. Um, We also just for a brief aside, laugh at the fact that like people still to this day consider Marilyn Monroe, like this full figured, like plus sized Hollywood icon. And like, you look at her on film and you're like, she is completely like normal average, like, on the thin side of like curvy. <laughs> it's like Megan Trainer saying that she's, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't even want to get into that. Um, let's talk about the characters. Jerry, played by Jack Lemon, is probably my favorite character in this. Uh, they're not the only purpose. Like, okay, so like. Uh, Usually in, like, duos, like Abbott and Costello, you have, like, the straight, you know, kind of smart, in-control guy, uh, Laurel and Hardy, and then you have sort of, like, the the dumb one, you know, the, the, the one who just, like, you know, is overreactive and doesn't really understand, and I really liked that, like, he, he he's not, like, he's a side character, but he's not, like, you know, a, a complete idiot, like... He's, like, pushing back and stuff, and he gets, like, one-upped every now and then. But he has his moments as well. And he's certainly as smart, if not smarter, uh, than Joe. Yeah, I think in a a two-and-a-half-hour movie, if they'd really just stuck with the shtick of, like, making... Making them, like, just the constant butt of the jokes and constantly fucking up, it would have gotten really tired really quickly. So I like that balance. What do you think of the character? Like, how, how do you like Joe's, sorry, Jerry slash Daphne? I mean, she was great comic relief, right? And I mean, that's not to say, like, obviously, um, Josephine had a lot of comic relief in her character, too. But, you know, like, <laughs> um. I, I think she was, like, the more carefree kind of, like, comic relief, and that, like, added, like, a sort of realness to it. I felt like I identified with Daphne in some ways, too, because I could totally, like, not in real life because I have too much anxiety, but, like, in, like if I were in a movie, I could totally see, like, myself being a character like that. Just, like, kind of going with the flow and, like, <laughs> oh, by the way, like, now I'm engaged to this millionaire, like you know, fucking guy who's on his, like, eighth marriage. I'm going to get the alimony. It's going to be great. Yeah, Let's I go. will say this about <laughs> Daphne, It and I kind of alluded to this before. I am 100% down for a character that will commit to a bit. 
Even me? <laughs> no, Nato, when you do it, it's annoying. <laughs> uh, just want to put it out there. I just want to put that out there. Another thing I really love about the characters, usually with the comic relief, like psychic character, like a common trope is the whole, you know, oh, no one wants to date me. You know, I'm kind of like pathetic-ish. And like, by the contrary, like everyone wants Daphne over like Josephine. Like, literally everyone. Yeah, Daphne is like a social butterfly, right? Like, the minute she gets on the train, like, and goes to bed, like, she's starting the party. You know what I mean? Daphne can get it. <laughs> it's it's, it's hard not to like somebody that can start a party that quickly. You know what I mean? Somebody who's not afraid to just, like, get down. Get down, get down. So ne- next up, I kind of want to talk about Sugar, because Marilyn Monroe is in this, uh, and so much has been said about her <laughs> during and after her career. How do you think this movie uh, does if so- this is someone's first impression of them? I think it's really deceptive, right? Because they kind of play her off as a character who's dumb, and then she'll go and say something that'll catch you completely off guard. And you're like, wow, she is, like, so smart. <laughs> and then she'll go back to the, but what do I know? I'm, I ain't got no brains kind of act. And it's, it's kind of whiplashy. Because every, every once in a while, every once in a while, she'll just get you. She'll say something that'll, that'll really wake you up. Do you think that it's, like, uh, for the character, do you think that it could be interpreted as, like, an act? Oh, 1,000%. 1,000%. I think, you know, as a woman in society sometimes, like, I thought that felt very realistic to me. Um, I think as a woman in society, a lot of the time, you're kind of, like, pegged into, like, these roles that people expect to you, and sometimes it becomes beneficial for you to, like, kind of play those up. Um, And I have 1,000% had other female friends that are, like, kind of, like, you know, just very, very smart, but, like, they're blondes, and, like, they realize at a young age that it's just beneficial to them in certain situations to play up that, like, ditzy, dumb blonde kind of persona, and, you know... I don't know. That that just felt very realistic to me. <laughs> so we obviously can't talk about Marilyn Monroe without talking about Marilyn Monroe. Uh, this role won her a Golden Globe for Best Actress, but her story is a tragedy. Her co-star Jack Lemmon said in an interview that she was unhappy and had become a recluse around this time. Tony Curtis both said that kissing her was like, quote, kissing Hitler as a joke. And also alleged that he was having an affair with her and that at one point she was carrying their child and had a miscarriage. Um, I should also say that Tony Curtis has said a lot of things, but what we do know is around the time of this film, Monroe found the diary of her then-husband, writer Arthur Miller, who said that he was disappointed in their marriage and sometimes found her embarrassing. I'd also like to mention that Arthur Miller wrote Monroe's last finished film, The Misfits, 
and specifically wrote a part for her which he would constantly revise during the production and their marriage did not last very long afterwards. There are way more death way more in-depth podcast books, documentaries, etc. about Marilyn Monroe. I guess what I'm most interested in right now is her role in this movie, which I'll lovingly describe as an angelic airhead. I mean, it's hard not to love it. Like, she's a woman who knows that she wants more out of life and, like, isn't afraid to, like, go for the gold. Or <laughs> or the millionaire. Even, even if it turns out that in the end she gets neither. But you know what? Like... She seems into it, so, like, good for her, I guess. <laughs> well, to Nato's point, it's it's really funny that they mentioned um, that. I mean, not funny, haha, but, like, obviously, if you're talking about Marilyn Monroe, it's impossible to, like, kind of think back, if you know anything about her, to, like, how she died and, like, you know, depression and stuff like that. Um, and, yeah, that's something that I think... I was uh, I was thinking about and was kind of at the forefront as I saw her acting in this film, um, you know, because she acts very happy, kind of like, you know, bubbly and stuff like that. But you know that, like, Marilyn Monroe underneath the surface, like the actual actress, was not in a very good place at this point in time, right? Yeah. Um, because she died not too long after this, right? Like a few years after this was when she killed herself. I think 62. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so it would have been, like, three years after this, pretty much. Um, yeah. And it, it's also just kind of... I really hate... It feels... It, talking about Marilyn Monroe feels exploitative to some degree because it feels like we have more information than we ever needed about a single person. It feels like we're way too much. We know way too much about her personal life. Like we literally have like pages from her psychiatrist um, that she like confided in, and it, that just feels grody to like some extent. Oh, one thousand percent. I did not know that there was that much information about Marilyn Monroe. There's so much information. I mean, um, it doesn't surprise me. You see the people that are fans of Marilyn Monroe; they're like fanatic. I mean, yeah. it doesn't surprise me, but it still doesn't feel right. <laughs> it's no, like it it's like doesn't. a cult of personality thing. Yeah, it's like if you want to know what, like, it's like me going, like, I want, I want to know what road is every hour of every day since. I mean, 1995. It's not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. The only <laughs> the only reason they want to know about Marilyn Monroe is because, you know, she's blonde, pretty, and possibly had an affair with the president, maybe. Apparently affair was with a lot of people, according to the people who allege it. Um, do you think... And this is a this was a successful film, obviously. Uh, and Jack Lemmon also say that he didn't th he think, in his opinion, 
he felt like when she was younger, she wanted this fame, struggled to get it, and then when she got it, she couldn't handle it. Um, do you think that this role is one of the roles that we kind of associate with sort of like the Marilyn Monroe stereotype? This and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, 1,000%. I don't know too much about Marilyn Monroe, except for like, you know, the basics that I think are kind of ubiquitous if you grew up in the U.S. Um, But when I think of Marilyn Monroe's, those are the two movies that come to mind and that I kind of associate Um, with her. So let's talk about Tony Curtis, father of Jamie Lee Curtis, and totally cool with having gay fans and not awkward at all about having gay fans. Um, So he plays Jamie Lee Curtis's dad. Mm-hmm. I, didn't real- I didn't realize that was Jamie Lee Curtis's dad. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> it really is true what they say that showbiz runs in the family. <laughs> well, Jamie Lee Curtis's mom was in Scream, or no, sorry, Psycho. <laughs> in Psycho, yeah, I knew that. I just didn't. <laughs> she was. She was also in Scream. <laughs> no, um, no, she was in Psycho. Uh, Anyway, so Tony Curtis plays Joe, and let me just say, dressing in drag to escape the mob is acceptable given the circumstances. Manipulating a girl into falling in love with you, especially nowadays, feels really creepy. I don't like it. Agree? Disagree? I mean, I agree. It's just a shame that they would take this plotline and, like, beat it to death in movies, like even, like, decades later. Like, tell me that this movie didn't lay the ground for, like, Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, 1,000%. Mm-hmm. Like, there are no new stories under the sun. <laughs> I mean, isn't this the plot of the gay deceivers just in reverse? Uh... <laughs> So Tony Curtis technically plays three characters. Uh, Jack Lemon usually incorrectly gets more acclaim for his role uh, for the record. But Curtis is the main in this. So he plays Joe, a used oil salesman who plays the sax. Uh, he plays Josephine, who a used oil saleswoman who plays the sax. And he plays Shell Oil Jr., a fake millionaire made to seduce sugar under the guise that he is impotent from trauma but would marry any woman that cured him. He he's he's almost trying to be like a cartoon, like a Looney Tune specifically versus uh, Disney at the time. How with you know with how fast paced his bits can be, uh, like uh, when he runs from the beach and puts on the makeup and sits in the bubble bath before Jerry and Sugar get back to the room. So uh, tell me tell me about Joe and your thoughts on him. Mrs. Doubtfire. That's literally, and I know, like, obviously this movie came first, but the entire time I was just like, this is Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> it's no, it's yeah, exactly would... the same pacing and everything of Robin Williams, like, you know, in that restaurant scene, for example, going back and forth between Mrs. Doubtfire and uh, I forget, like, the dad's name, but like. <laughs> Daddy Doubtfire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, no, yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing, but with Tootsie as my reference, I was like, 
This is the exact same story, like Dustin Hoffman getting into drag for some reason or another, and then falling in love with a woman and not being able to handle doing both of the things at the same time. Man, I, I wonder how Hollywood thought of that one. <laughs> <laughs> There's this interesting movie um, called The Beaver Trilogy by Trent Harris, right? It is one of the most famous unreleased movies because they couldn't get the rights to the song they used by Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> um, but like using drag as entertainment to me is very interesting especially when it comes to like cliches like liars revealed right it's just like with tootsie and mrs doubtfire and like how many sitcoms of the 90s i know boy meets world did it once three's Um, company i mean that's 70s to be fair but three's company (laughs) Because usually, because usually around this time, drag was used at least in mainstream um, as either sort of like queer expression or as a way to kind of like put women down. Uh, do you think that this falls into either of those categories or both? I mean, I kind of see it, and I'm sure there are elements of both of those things. But I kind of see it in a slightly different angle. It's like you're letting the audience in on a joke that seems, like, super obvious, right? And the joke is that nobody else in the movie can see this thing that's, like, right in front of your face. It's like, how how can you tell when it's so obvious that the person in front of you is like a man in a dress. If you'd only just like open your eyes and like pay attention for three seconds, like it kind of plays on this, like, like you're in on it and like nobody else in the movie is, but like you're in on it sort of deal. It's a Superman syndrome. Yeah. How it's does... like you know that Clark Kent is Superman. <laughs> you can you can tell that how terrible of a disguise glasses are. Doesn't he like literally like write the articles on Superman like for a while? It's okay. like hiring Peter Parker to take pictures of Spider-Man. It's like it, it's an inside joke. And if there's one thing I know about people, it's that everybody wants to be part of an inside joke. This is true. Speaking of inside jokes, uh, I personally think that this is a movie we could do. Like, let's let's be honest with ourselves for just a second, okay? Because there's like there's three main characters in this. There's three of us, right? We can all get tickets for Amtrak. They're not gonna like monitor the insides. We got this. Um, either Ro or I would be Marilyn Monroe because Amelia is obviously the Jack Lemon of the group. <laughs> uh, we can fight. Over I'll wear that. that. <laughs> I'll wear that mantle proudly. <laughs> but you know, unlike a unlike a scale, there's not. There's only a few big set pieces in this. 
everything else is like very like um I don't want to say like small scale, but like intimate almost. Yeah, I I I feel that like a big part of the first chunk of the movie takes part on a tr- takes place on a train, mm-hmm. um, right? Yeah, it feels it feels really kind of like cramped, right? And then you get like the inside of a yacht, a hotel room, like. Which realistically, There's... you could just both film in a hotel room, <laughs> right? I'm I'm sure they took the time to like build up a soundstage or whatever, because why not? This is golden age Hollywood. Fucking slap it on a soundstage, but like they very realistically could have like gone and found a hotel and just shot in the room. That's what I'm saying. Gritty reboot. You know, unauthorized. Us let's three, let's fucking do it. go, NATO. Let's go. We can, I'm so we can down rent for a hotel this. room. Let's do it. <laughs> this is the this is the next edition of Gay Echo remakes this movie. Except this time, we're doing it to an actually good movie. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, this movie was a big success. Marilyn and Jack won Golden Globes. Uh, this movie also got a Golden Globe for Best Picture Musical Comedy, Best Costume Design at the Academy Awards, and five other nominations. It won the Best Costume uh, in addition to the five other nominations. It made nine, $49 million uh, against the $2.9 million budget, 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, constantly on the greatest films of all time list. And it was also condemned by the Catholic League of Decency and banned in Kansas because the film's content was, quote, too disturbing for Kansas, uh, which is apparently a real quote. <laughs> so um, that's how you know it's good is because Kansas hates it. And the Catholics. <laughs> they hate everything. <laughs> and if the Catholics are getting down on you, you know you have something golden. Also, I'm not surprised that it won a costume an award for its costuming. Like, you always see these movies about men dressing up as women, like, sweeping these sorts of categories. Like, look at uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Like, famous for its costumes. Like, it's, like, it seems like you can't put a woman in, uh, like, a man in a dress without winning an award. (laughs) For I would putting, like to <laughs> a, putting a dress on somebody. I would like to say I was actually really impressed by the makeup job on oh. Joe and Jerry. Like they didn't have to go as far as they did for like the late fifties, which then, makes me think in character. Like who did they go to to put their makeup on their? Like you know they couldn't just go to a woman friend and be like, "Hi, we're gonna dress up as women and escape from the mob. Can you teach us how to do our makeup, please?" Maybe they've been secretly doing their makeup this entire time. Wow, this movie is a lot gayer than I thought. <laughs> For the right price. Actually, that brings up a good. Wow. Point. <laughs> so. This movie is obviously a success with, you know, the 
more mainstream Hollywood types, you know, the more mainstream Hollywood movies. And this is also seen as a queer classic because of the queer coding, uh, the drag and the little like wink, wink, nod, nod, nods and some of the characters. Do you, th- how do you think this movie in the late fifties could kind of garner both? I think the fact that Marilyn Monroe in it, is in it helps a lot. And the fact that like the, the domain romance is obviously a straight one, like mainstream audiences can get behind that. Mm -hmm. And like everything aside from that is goofy hijinks. Like, yeah. Marilyn Monroe is kind of a bisexual icon. She's the, it's got some like, realize you're into women and who was also into women it's it's got like cleverly written comedy bits and like if you look aside like look away from some really problematic portrayals of men lusting after women then like there's a lot to look at this movie to like think back of fondly on, you know what I mean? Would you mm-hmm. say it's campy? Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. One thousand percent. Like Osgood Fielding the Third alone is enough to camp this movie like right the fuck up. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's probably. It's probably where like uh, the connect is is just the campy humor <laughs> mixed with the straight uh, romance. Um, yeah, I I think to my knowledge, like Marilyn Monroe was the only um, non-straight uh, actor in this film, and I I hope I'm wrong on that, but I think that's correct. It's always really interesting to me when, like, straight, cis, white movie makers kind of stumble into camp almost accidentally. Do go on. Although, although, like, when you take into account the effect that the Hayes Code had on, like, queer coding in movies in general... It's not really all that accidental. Because, like, if you look at, for example, actual millionaire Osgood Fielding III, like, you get a sense, right, just by, like, mannerisms and facial expressions and vocalizations and detentions paid that, like, the reveal at the end of the movie is not going to be, like, the big (gasps) you tricked me kind of moment that, like, audiences would come to expect out of a movie where people are cross-dressing to escape from the mafia. But, like, it all kind of... It all kind of adds up, you know? Like, that on top of, you know... The cross-dressing on top of, you know, Marilyn Monroe just doing her Marilyn Monroe thing kind of 
builds up into this kind of textbook example of camp. <laughs> Complete with a ukulele. Complete with the ukulele! <laughs> Portrayed with, uh, played by Marilyn Monroe and Tiny Tim. Besides Mrs. Doubtfire and Tootsie, what other films do you think that this film inspired for better or for worse? And what stereotypes do you think that this kind of, like, helped push that were already being, like, uh, perpetuated in Hollywood? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Victor Victoria was somewhere on that list. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, Gage... it's... Go ahead. Oh, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. No, you. Mine mine was not going to go on the Victor Victoria thing, so... <laughs> <laughs> Somebody <laughs> go. Well, I mean, it's, it's such a defining example of, like, a, such a widely done trope. I'm sure it has its little queer tendrils in all sorts of places is all I was gonna say (laughs) yeah I was gonna say like I think probably most media that portrays like something similar were probably like inspired to a certain extent by this movie you know I could see um little bits of like uh, Jack Tripper and Three's Company and obviously the Gay Deceivers um, in reverse even, you know, the Birdcage. Although that was, like, from La Caja Full, but, like, you know, I think the way that, that these kind of, like, tropes and stuff like that are acted out or, like, the level of exaggeration um, to a certain level, like, we're all pretty much the same as this, and I wouldn't be surprised if they were, you know, low-key inspired by this movie because it was such a big and, like, kind of ubiquitous, like classic film you know for me i think it kind of helped normalize the idea because like uh go with me i think i already said this but just like reiterate like there was sort of like this one-off you know easy joke you know in Mm -hmm. hollywood where like the straight man would like end up in drag for like a moment to like maybe like sort of like uh escape the police like running by in like the silent era mm-hmm. and it kind of evolved from there into here kind of gradually i kind of feel like there's another trope besides like the tootsie and the mrs doubtfire that were that this movie helped to kind of uh normalize and that is the idea of maintaining a character while in drag mm-hmm as for for like a joke effect. So it's not just that they're accidentally in drag, it's that they're playing a character while in drag. Mm-hmm. And you see that on and that's going back to all the sitcoms, you see that all the time for effect where like um yeah, the stereotype like... would be like, <laughs> Why are you dressed as a woman? I'm getting you know, it's like, I'm not a woman. <laughs> I'm writer strong or something. That's a great porn name. Uh, but that was also like an actual person's name. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's like it's got kind of like an undercover man kind of vibe, which I think would be a, a great name for that trope. White chicks. That's another one. White chicks. Oh, absolutely. White chicks was inspired by this movie. Mm, yeah. How could they not? 
How could they not? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, like literally while we were watching this, my boyfriend and I were talking about white chicks. <laughs> So, like, yeah, <laughs> for real. Yeah, in fact, I think the only thing that's missing from this movie is Terry Crews singing 1,000 Miles oh, God. really aggressively at one of the Wayans brothers. <laughs> can, we, can we edit that in? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's... Yes. A, I think that was a pretty good discussion on this movie. Is there anything else uh, y'all would like to talk about? I think we nailed it. Yeah, I think. <laughs> all right, I think well, we're all good. Let's just sum it up then. Amelia, did this movie make you want to have a sleeping compartment full of girls and booze? Yes. Or take okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would. I would love a train compartment full of uh, girls and booze. Thank you. <laughs> let's make this happen. <laughs> so, Ro, did this movie make you want to be loved by you, just you, and nobody else but you? Or have to play in a band in Florida for $6 a day? Well, I mean, it's the 50s. I'm sure $6 a day was plenty. <laughs> <laughs> No, but yeah, this movie is a queer classic, no doubt about it. Anyway, that's what we think, but if you've seen this movie or end up watching it later, we'd love to hear your thoughts and your experience with it. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at aka.pod, that's G-A-Y-E-C-A-P-O-D. While you're there, no one you're there, want to suggest some movie for us to watch in the future. We're always looking for new suggestions, and we can't wait to experience more movies with you. I'm Nito Kitch, reminding you, Sheboygan. <laughs> Sheboygan will never not be a funny word. It, it, it's a hilarious fucking word. It isn't even a real world word. It's a place, yeah, it's right? A, it's a place. It's, it's not a, a real word. It's a place. <laughs> it's not a real place. It can't be, and I won't be told otherwise. I won't be <laughs> I'm sure there's like a couple hundred thousand people in Wisconsin that will be really surprised to hear that their home is no longer a real place. <laughs> <laughs>